In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So 
God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Microsoft did a study recently that investigated, again, the optimal number of exposures for an audio message to be remembered. In other words, how many times do you need to hear something before it sticks? Well, unless the audio message is to one of your children regarding flushing the toilet or turning off a light, the data said that the optimal number is between 6 and 20 times, confirming earlier research that had landed on the number 14. So if there was something we really wanted to stick as a, as a church, we would want to repeat it 14 times, 14 Sundays. This message is all in on this idea because for over a month now, we've been studying Genesis. And there have been principles about coming to the text that have been repeated, but but only a couple times. So I want to do my part in helping make sure that one of the most important principles sticks. And it's really this. When we come to the text, in order to read it for all it's worth, in order to grasp the power of the story it is telling, we cannot forget the storyteller and the story hearer. Like What made this text so compelling to the ones who wrote it and consumed it? And, and how did they understand the universe? And what questions were they asking? What were they ultimately concerned with? And how does this text speak to those concerns? When we forget to do that, we end up in a world of misreading and misunderstanding the text because we merely bring our own questions to the text, our own questions that are born out of different obsessions and concerns, different understandings of the universe. And then we find ourselves asking the text to answer questions for us that the text was never intended to answer. We find ourselves demanding of the text what it is unable to provide. And as a result, we end up calling it stupid or ignorant or at the very least irrelevant. We end up writing it off. 
or throwing it out because, well, really, because we've chosen to impose on it our own will. Genesis 1 is a perfect example. This morning, I get to rewind us back and share an insight that I think is so powerful when we remember this principle and when we practice it. So so let's start with just acknowledging the number one question asked of Genesis 1 by us, by we, we 21st century Western minds. What are we obsessed with? What do we want to know most about? And really it's this, is this how we got here? Is this how the earth was formed? Is this how mankind began? Is this how historically and scientifically all things came into being? Let's, let's just acknowledge that that's our obsession. It's that issue that we really hope a sacred text would speak to because we are seeking coherence when it comes to things like photons and atomic structures and God. But we need to acknowledge that that was not their obsession, ancient Israel obsession. They had no concept of photons and atomic structures. They weren't asking how historically and scientifically all things came into being. Ancient thinkers, all ancient thinkers across the board assumed and accepted their existence as being the result of some divine being, a god or some gods. It was a non-issue for them. And while they were, were concerned with coherence, it was coherence that pertained to their lives as they functioned here on the earth. They were asking questions about order. Their interest was in a sacred text that spoke to how they fit in the world with God. They were asking, what is our role in this cosmic drama? And if we don't acknowledge that, we have a big problem. See, John Walton makes this analogy to highlight the point. Someone from ancient Israel shows up a half hour late to a play and asks, how did the play begin? One person leans over and says, well, the script was written in the 1930s, but wasn't really taken seriously until the 1940s when a producer and, and, the, and the Israelite interrupts and says, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not interested in that. I want to know how the, the play began. So another person leans over and says, okay, well, the, the stage was built not too long ago. And then, and he says, no, 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 no. I'm not interested in when the stage was built. And the guy says, well, well, if the stage wasn't built, then we wouldn't have this. And exasperated, the, the late arriver says, listen, I want to know what happened since the curtain came up. That's what I'm concerned with. That's what my questions are about. I want to hear about the action and the characters ultimately so that I know where to place myself in this drama, where I can see myself. I want to be able to identify with it because I have questions about my own significance and where I fit. So I'm not interested in when the stage was built. Well, bringing it back to us as we study and talk about Genesis 1 and 2, Walton basically says, listen, if we go and tell ancient Israel that they need to be more concerned with the building of the stage, that's our problem. Ancient Israel, they weren't concerned with how the stage was built. They wanted to understand their role in the play. They wanted to understand their function according to how everything else had been ordered. For the ancient thinker, that's what creation meant. For ancient Israel, something was created when it became ordered and it was given a function. 
something came into being or, or came alive when it was found according to an ordered context. To exist meant to function in a role according to how an ordered system operates. Non-existence was to have no function. Non-existence was disorder because in disorder, you don't know how to operate. And it's important to note that we actually still do think along these lines. And I think in some ways our teenagers know it best. They know how it feels to show up to a new environment or a, a new social gathering and to have no idea what their role is or how they fit into the order of it or how this environment functions practically or socially. In, in that moment, you literally feel non-existent. Like, do I even exist? And, and you might know it too. Like, like take coming to church, for example. You show up at church, you're new, you don't have a role, you're not sure where you fit in the, the ordering of things. You can feel non-existent. I think it's why some folks who are even subconsciously aware of this show up and they're like, give me a job. Give me something to do. I just need something to do. Give me a role. Like, have you ever experienced the comfort of that? You're somewhere without a role. You're unsure of how an environment functions or where you fit. There's tremendous tension. Then you're given a role and you begin to understand how things function and you have a part in it. What a rush of peace. You feel created. You come alive in this environment. This is why the problem of disorder is presented in the opening lines of Genesis. The earth was formless and void. The great need was for someone or something to show up and produce out of the chaos something that functioned because it was ordered. The great need was to understand humanity's role and how we fit into a larger context. So we have Genesis 1, a depiction of God as the one who shows up to chaos and disorder and begins creating by ordering. And he begins creating by purposing life and giving it a function. The story of humanity coming into being and coming into life, having been found in an ordered reality and having been given a function. This is Another analogy from John Walton. You can picture a house on moving day. The truck has just been emptied into the house and inside the house, it's, it's chaos. It's completely disordered. Boxes are everywhere. Things are where they don't belong. There's a room in the back that is empty and therefore could be, it could be anything. But as it is, it's formless and void. It doesn't have a function. And as such, it's kind of nothing. But by giving it a function, by ordering it, a, a den is created in the back of the house. The homeowner creates a den by ordering it and giving it a purpose with the right couch along that wall and the TV over there and the rug just right and the coffee table in place. A den is created. Oftentimes we read Genesis 1 and 2 looking for a story about how the house was built but Genesis 1 and 2 is much more a story about how the home was created. This is the power of Genesis 1 and 2 that we've lost touch with because we keep coming to it with questions it was never intended to answer. This is a story of a God who shows up in chaos and disorder and speaks. And life is created because the disorder is being dealt with. Look, Genesis 1, 3 and 4, there's non-existence for lack of order. Then verse 3, God speaks. Verse 4, God 
separated the light from darkness. Verse six, God speaks. Verse seven, God separates the waters which were below. Verse nine, God speaks. Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the, the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, the trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. There's an an ordering to it that is being spoken into existence. Again, in verse 14, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs for seasons. And, And there's an order Look, out of disorder, there became order. And and the creation story goes on and on. And then, in an ordered environment, God places the human and gives the human a role. And the human is created. This is the story of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it's the story of the entire Bible. One unified story about how God shows up continually in disorder, and speaks, and life is created. It's the story of Abram, who was a wanderer, a nomad, existing in kind of a disordered life without function, without a function in a larger story, a greater context. God shows up and speaks, and Abraham is created because he's given a function, and he's promised a land, and his life becomes ordered. And through that, a nation is created. This is the story of Israel and their disorder as their priorities are out of whack and their worship is out of whack and they end up in exile. They're scattered all over. It's chaos for this nation. And God shows up and he speaks through their prophets and he leads them back to Jerusalem and they begin reordering their nation around God and they begin reattaching to the function given them by God to be the nation through which all the world will be blessed. It's the story of Jesus who enters a completely disordered world, a world that is tribal at its worst, a world of rich and poor, all fending for themselves, the sick and disabled discarded as refuge, women having no place, the rules only serving to make humanity more rebellious in their hearts. And Jesus shows up into that chaos and he begins to speak and he begins to touch and he begins to heal, and he begins to reorder society. He begins to create a new kingdom on this disordered earth. No, these these sick ones will not be discarded. No, these little ones won't be shooed away. No, here's what it looks like to live in step with God as he has ordered things. And Jesus began to reorder the world and, and create new life and a new kingdom turning humanity's little kingdoms upside down with with his love, with his mercy, with his total and complete rejection of self-preservation and self-will by living according to God's order and with God's defining of his life. Time after time, after time, God shows up and speaks. And what was disordered and for all intents and purposes non-functioning begins to reorder and begins to fire on all cylinders. It comes to life. The story of the Bible and the story of Genesis 1, it's, it's the story of my life. I think back to middle school 
as I looked out at the world that was so big and so great and so chaotic, feeling non-existent because I was unsure of my place in this world. And that moment I point to where I was created when God spoke during a youth group worship service, impressing on me the reality of his power. It was like a whisper in my heart that said, yes, I'm here. And yes, I love you. And yes, I consider you my child. And yes, I have a plan for your life that stretches into eternity. And after having been created in that moment, feeling in a way that I had somehow been born all over again, but this time not born into chaos where I would feel non-existent, this time born into a being as I understood myself as part of God's world, as having a role in in what God was ultimately after and finding a, a thing around which I could build around a life, I could build a life and a purpose. Look, that's the story of Genesis 1. And the story of the whole Bible. And it's the story we desperately need right now in our world and our lives. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we can find disorder that needs to be dealt with in the deepest places of our lives and our hearts and our minds. And as much as we try to have it all together, as much as we want to have it all together, We find ourselves dealing with disorder in our thoughts and our priorities and our finances and our diets and our relationships, disorder with our stuff. And just when we feel like even we've rightly ordered one area of our lives, we become acutely aware of disorder in another. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the whole Bible really is this humble plea for us all to recognize that we are not self-ordering beings that we have a desperate need for a greater ordering being to show up and speak. It's a plea for me to remember that I have a desperate need for something and someone outside of myself to speak into my life and begin to bring order to the chaos that is in my heart. I need at the core of my life, and I need a core for my life, an anchor for my life, a fixed, unchanging point of reference around which my life can be ordered and around which I can be purposed so that I can live life to the full. And as much as I'd like to believe that I am fully capable of becoming a rightly ordered human on my own, as much as I'd like to think that I can be my own source of truth or that I can, apart from God, create myself according to my own terms and be the source for my own definition— Genesis 1 reminds us that it doesn't work. That's actually the path to chaos. And that's actually Genesis 2 and the serpent and the forbidden fruit and the lie that we can be the great ordering being. That lie that says, yeah, you can be like God. But I can't be. I'm a being who is constantly changing. One day I see a thing one way and feel a certain way about a thing. The next day I see it differently and feel differently. And by trying to build a life around my unstable self, I wind up non-existent. But the great lie that was is the great lie that still is to humanity, that we can exist on our own. We can order things according to our own way and and come up with our own purposes. And and this morning, I kind of want to just bring things to a close by confronting the, the plague of this lie, the one that was in Genesis 2 and the one we still deal with. 
because it's really important. And, and in a way, it's literally killing our kids. Look, self-definition, self-ordering is a burden too great to bear. It's the kind of thing that's like a turd in a Snickers wrapper. Like, oh, this thing looks good. I get to decide everything about who I am and why I'm alive. And then it's like, oh, oh no. Oh, oh my God. The, the weight of this burden is literally crushing me. It's, it's on me. It's all on me. I have to decide who I'm going to be and how I'm going to live and what my place is in this world and, and how I fit. And it's, and it's crushing me because the world seems to always be changing and there are so many options and I'm always changing. This idea that life is found in our freedom to order our own lives as we see fit is a lie. It's a lie to say that freedom and life is found in our ability to define ourselves as we see fit. But what we hear from Genesis 1 is that to insist on self-ordering and to insist on self-defining means to insist on chaos and to insist on non-existence. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not interested in another person telling me where my place is or who I am. That's the story of mankind. It's a story uh, of humanity oppressing each other along these lines. Humans telling humans where they belong and who they are. And it's actually ugly. So the rejection of somebody else telling you your place and your identity is appropriate. But the rejection of an eternal, unchanging, loving God telling us our place and giving us our identity is an overcorrection. Let's not reject God who revealed himself to all of humanity 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus, proving his goodness and his trustworthiness as he healed the sick, restationed the poor, washed the feet of his friends, scolded the powerful, as he ultimately laid down his life for me. Let's not reject that. Because the dream actually is of a generation who in their strength says, no, you don't get to tell me my place and you don't get to tell me my place and you don't get to tell me my place, but God does. And he tells me that my place is a seat at the table, that my place is that of royalty, an heir to an eternal kingdom, a son in his holy family. The dream is of a generation who in their strength says, no, you don't get to tell me who I am and you don't get to tell me who I am and you don't get to tell me who I am, but God does. And he tells me that I'm divinely inspired, that I'm relentlessly loved, that I'm eternally purposed. He tells me that I'm divinely inspired and I'm not a cosmic accident, but I'm actually one whose face was inspired by God's face. I'm relentlessly loved because of the image I bear and, and my worth is not based solely on what I can produce or achieve. God tells me that I'm eternally purposed and that the reasons for my being stretch way beyond any career path I choose or any pleasure or any game I'm good at or any other thing contained on this side of life because I was meant to enjoy God and be enjoyed by God forever. Amen. This morning, God is saying, hey, hear my voice. Receive my love. Order your entire life around it. Come into being through it. Be created by it. So here's the question. Will you allow God to do what only God can do? Will you let God speak into your life and let God enter into your life and create you by allowing him to define you and order your heart and order your life and set you in a context of his world and give you purpose. Let's pray. 
Lord, this morning we come before you humbly, acknowledging our need for you because you're unchanging and you're eternal. And we need you to anchor our lives. We need you to speak into our lives and purpose us and order our world and order our lives. Lord, forgive us for the time we spent believing that we can order our own lives as we see fit and define our own selves as we see fit. No, Lord, it's not working for us. We come back to you and ask you to show up and speak. Thank you, Jesus, for for showing up and speaking the way you did, for proving your goodness to us by earning our trust, by loving us and dying for us. Lord, we just pray that this week, as we consider these deep truths, you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit. Take these truths as seeds planted in soil of our heart and cause them to grow and produce fruit. Amen.